Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Hello and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. I'm Dan Malthrop, the Chief Executive of the City Club and also a proud member. And here in the midst of the sheltering in place that we're all doing in light of the coronavirus pandemic, we're presenting a virtual forum from the studios of IdeaStream, our public media partner. As you know, last week uh, we gathered medical and public health professionals to discuss responses to the pandemic and how we can all do our part to slow the spread of COVID-19 and to flatten the curve. Today, we're looking at the impact on our economy. We're looking at the impact today and looking ahead in the coming weeks and months, and also at how our community and our nation is preparing to meet those challenges. So as in every City Club forum, you can participate with your questions. You can text them to 330-541-5794. That's 330 330- 541-5794. And if you're on Twitter, you can also tweet them at the City Club. We'll work them all in in the second half of the program. And as we begin, I also want to thank sponsors and members who have stepped up to support our efforts to continue the conversation in the midst of this crisis, especially the Western Reserve Area Agency on Aging, Sisters of Charity Foundation, Everstream, and City Club board member Mark Ross of PWC, as well as many others who have stepped up. You inspire us, and we thank you. So I want to introduce our panelists. Dr. Susan Helper is the Frank Tracy Carlton Professor of Economics at the Weatherhead School of Management at Case Western Reserve University. She was formerly Chief Economist at the U.S. Department of Commerce and a member of the White House staff. She's been a speaker at the City Club in the past. Sue Helper, so glad to have you with us. Thank you very much. Thank you. Also with us, economist Jack Kleinhentz. He, Dr. Kleinhentz is the chief economist for the National Retail Federation. They represent retailers from Main Street, mom and pop, mom and pop shops to Amazon and Walmart, grocery stores and restaurants. In other words, Jack Kleinhentz is charged with examining the impact, the economic impact on retailers that are shutting down and those that have never worked harder to keep inventory on the shelves. Jack, thanks so much for joining us. Pleased to be here. Thank you. Also with us is Dale Anglin. She's looking at this from a different perspective. She is program director at Cleveland Foundation, tasked with helping to coordinate the COVID-19 Rapid Response Fund, which is a collaborative effort by a legion of local and regional philanthropic entities. Cleveland Foundation is the administrator of the Rapid Response Fund. Dale Anglin, thank you for making time for us today as well. Nice to join you. Jack Kleinhens, uh, can you help us understand what has happened over the last two weeks? Dan, uh, obviously, uh, uh, this is a situation that's really quite unimaginable. Um, from, a, from our perspective, uh, we've never seen anything like this before. I mean, effectively, um, we are stopping the economy uh, in order to save lives, and uh, the ramifications are really uncertain. 
we have no playbook on how to handle this outbreak and how to handle the economy under under these circumstances. From a retail standpoint, uh, many of our retailers um, have either decided to close or have closed. And this pandemic epidemic that we have, uh, the coronavirus, is certainly a, a moving target. Uh, we're in constant communication with our members, our retailers, and government and health officials. Um, and we don't know how long it's going to last. Uh, we know, uh, obviously, as reported, that select retailers like uh, warehouse clubs, grocery, drugstores are seeing excessive buying and stockpiling, while other retailers are struggling. Many of them had to close, and many of these retailers are small businesses, and they're, they're working hard to maintain uh, their businesses, obviously. And um, we're hearing from retailers that they uh, they are experiencing disruptions. It's really too soon uh, to determine the full impact. We don't see any inflection point right now because of the, of the coronavirus, so it's really hard to sort of map out how how this will continue into the economy. But certainly in the next three to four weeks, we, you know, we can be hopeful that we flatten the curve. Um, but there's really no way to candy coat this. Um, we're in a uh, uncertain situation. It's difficult to navigate. I, I suspect that the economy will contract over the next uh, couple of quarters. Um, and, you know, it's not only domestically, regionally, but also globally. Um, so it, it's really difficult to, you know, put any real heavy positive spin given what we have in front of us. Um, there has been there have been projections all over the map about um, that the amount of job losses could range as high as three million before this is all over. At the same time, uh, we have seen the. I shared you and I were talking earlier about the unemployment claims in just in the state of Ohio, which last week were somewhere between three thousand and four thousand, and this week are somewhere between one hundred and ten, one hundred and fifteen thousand. What do you? What are you and your colleagues looking at in terms of scenarios that are you know worst case to best case? Well, I, I can't represent the state, but I mean, it's important to recognize that the state had been working to pay off its uh, borrowed funds from the past recession. And I believe um, we have paid back the funds that we had borrowed. However, from what I read on the website, um, our unemployment funds might be uh, under the level we need for a moderate recession. At least that's the context that is on the website. Uh, so there's not much that we can do uh, or I can do or our organization can do directly at any state level. Um, many states are probably in better, it could be in better shape, but it, it, I don't know that information. And some are probably even in worse uh, situation. So I'm not gonna be surprised if we have another situation in the months ahead that there'll be need for federal funding for more uh, unemployment compensation and even extensions on unemployment benefits. 
With respect to the the shifting in labor, as some retailers have laid people off, and uh, are we seeing that grocery stores and drug stores and discount stores and the like are increasing, are actually in a, in a moment where they're hiring? Well, you've already heard uh, probably reports that Walmart, I believe, today said that they were looking to hire. If I'm mis- mistaken, please excuse me, but I thought that there was a possibility of 100,000, which seems a, a, a large number. And then I know that Amazon is doing the same. Um, they're, they're both trying to keep up with demand as well as the ability uh, to transport the products uh, to individual homes and households uh, where, 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 where they are needed. So I think it'll be a function of different areas. We also have heard just locally, if I'm not mistaken, correct me, but I think um, Gojo, which makes the hand uh, sanitizers, was also looking to uh, increase production and they needed more people. So I think it's going to depend on, on different products that are needed by households uh, as to the extent there will be a, a gearing up and an increased de- uh, demand for, uh, for workers. Turning to Sue Helper, uh, let me just say Jack Kleinhens is a chief economist with the National Retail Federation. Sue Helper, economist uh, and uh, economics professor at Case Western Reserve University. I know some of what you have been looking at in terms of how the this moment has revealed weaknesses in various parts of the economy have to do has to do with the supply chain supply chain issues both uh, in healthcare and more broadly. Could you explain a little bit about what you've learned? I think we're having trouble getting Sue Helper. Jack Klein, Sue Helper, are you there? Uh, I can hear you. Yes, I can now hear you. Okay, great. Wonderful. Sue, I was just asking uh, about the supply chain work that you've been been engaged in, the research about fissures in the supply chain that have been revealed as a result of this uh, economic moment. Yeah, it first started uh, with auto industry not being able to get parts from China and other industries. And now we're seeing uh, shortages in our medical product supply chain, a lot of which, many layers of which come from China. So uh, we get about 80% of our pharmaceuticals and pharmaceutical ingredients from China. Um, we get uh, masks from China, and we get the uh, raw materials for masks from China. And so um, that's made it hard, or it's one of the factors making it hard to ramp up our supply of these, these uh, supplies that will be needed very soon, and even right now. Specifically, could you talk a little bit about the... Um about the well, actually, more broadly, rather than just the healthcare, but um, the healthcare supply chain, but other areas in which supply chain issues have emerged that really register as not only threats to our economy but potentially threats to national security. So I think the medical supply chain issue is the most critical right now. Um, you know, we're not getting automotive components from China right now, but uh, you know that's not actually an critical issue right at this moment because people are not buying cars. The auto companies, the auto plants have shut down because they're worried about infecting their own workers. Um, So uh, 
uh, I think the critical issues really are in getting enough masks to people. Uh, so we, we actually already have reports of doctors that are rationing their masks, putting their own health at risk uh, to, to help other patients. We uh, worry that there may not be enough ventilators, that once the uh, full force of the disease really hits, that we may need you know five to ten times as many ventilators as we have to help people with breathing. So, so both of these, all of these are, are critical issues. So uh, earlier this week, the president announced and sort of invoked the Defense Production Act, which uh, sent a lot of folks running to Wikipedia to find out what exactly the Defense Production Act is. Um, he says he doesn't necessarily want to use it at this point, but he talked about it as a tool in, in the federal toolbox. Can you help us understand exactly what it is and how, uh, how its use might change things? Yeah, it's, it gives the president uh, incredible powers to uh, allocate and direct production in the U.S. So it can say to a company making ventilators that uh, you, you must fill the government's orders first it can even say to auto companies, you know, you have to start making ventilators or other products. Um, so it's potentially a really great tool, um, but it needs to be activated soon. Um, so as of a couple of days ago, hospitals or, or ventilator companies were saying, hey, we could actually expand our capacity. We don't have orders. So at the very least, uh, the government needs to be placing some orders for, for, for ventilators uh, we need to be increasing uh, demand for masks. Um, and I think the thing about this is exponential growth. It sounds like math, but, you know, every person who gets infected infects someone else. And, and that person goes on to infect other people. So you really need to take action before you think there's a problem. And we've seen that in Ohio with the Governor DeWine, um, you know, closing restaurants and bars at a time when, you know, there were only uh, several dozen cases in Ohio. And I think the wisdom of his approach has been shown. But the, we, I think we don't see that level of urgency in the federal government. I think that the president's saying he, does, he hopes he doesn't have to use the authority. The time to use the authority is now. It's going to take us several months to get enough ventilators. Uh, for the predicted spike in in the need for them when when people really start getting sick. Sue Helper um, Sue Helper is the Frank Tracy Carlton Professor of Economics at the Weatherhead School of Management at Case Western Reserve University. Sue Sue, let me ask you the um, in terms of the economics of something like ventilators and ventilator manufacturers saying we don't have any orders. We could certainly ramp up production if asked, but nobody's ordering that. Is that because? Uh, hospitals are reluctant to spend the money themselves because they don't know they don't want to be stuck on the other side of this with a bunch of ventilators with a, an oversupply of ventilators that they're not using on a regular basis that from an economic from a rational quote rational economic standpoint doesn't make sense to have later which is why the federal government w needs to step in to create the market that doesn't exist yet that's exactly right Somebody needs to bear the risk in the economy of a pandemic like this. Um, this particular pandemic was not predicted, but the idea of pandemics has been known for a long time. And so we, we really need the government to step in and be the purchaser of last resort. 
So I want to ask also about other policy uh, that, and Jack Kleinhens, I'd like to hear from you on this as well. Earlier, I, th- I think it was earlier this week, it's hard to know right now how, when things happen, to remember when things happen, because every day feels like both an eternity and really fast. Um, but at some point in the recent past, the federal government, or sorry, the, the Federal Reserve lowered interest rates to virtually zero or to just a, a quarter of a percentage point, I think. Please correct me. Um, that was, I think uh, actually March fifteenth. It was March fifteenth, so that's just five yeah. days ago. Um, and uh, but am I right? They they lowered they lowered the interbank rate to just a quarter of a percentage point. Is that correct? Uh, or to that's zero? Correct. Between it's a range that goes between a zero and uh, a quarter of a point. Yes. So. Does at this is that the the last nail in the you know or the the sort of last tool that they have at their disposal? I mean, is there is in terms of fiscal policy, that's their they've got sort of one lever, and that seems like it's maxed out. Well, uh, they've actually turned to some of the experience that they used during the Great Re- uh, Recession. That is, they restarted quantitative easing by increasing Treasury and mortgage-backed security purchases of somewhere around 500 billion and 200 billion uh, respectively. They cut um, the discount window. This is where banks can go and borrow money very uh, cheaply. And many banks have been to the window and uh, it was at 1.5%. Now it's down to a quarter of a percent. Um, And there's been reduced reserve requirements. These are a lot of technicalities, but a very important thing to keep liquidity in the economy. They've also reduced the rate on uh, liquidity swaps. What that is, U.S. dollar liquidity swaps. This is where uh, other central banks are actually buying U.S. dollars, whether they're from the Bank of England, Bank of Japan, et cetera, uh, because we are the reserve currency and the dollars are are really needed in many ways uh, for the functioning of international payments and the liquidity for companies. There are many obligations that are issued in dollar formats, whether, you know, in other countries. So um, that's um, certainly a a factor that they've undertaken. And that all occurred back on March 15th. And then um, in, uh, on St. Patrick's Day, they established a commercial paper funding facility. Uh, This is where the Fed is actually in the commercial paper market uh, and able to, provide liquidity for that market. Commercial paper is uh, loans that are uh, debt that's issued on a short-term basis by corporations, not banks. Um, and and it's, a, it's a pretty fluid market, but it also has been clogged up because of the uncertainty. Uh, just a couple more. I'm sorry to go down the list, but it's really important that they really have uh, increased the amount of liquidity in the economy. Um, there is the establishment of a money market mutual fund liquidity facility. This was a real critical one back during the Great Recession. A lot of people have their money sw- uh, that is actually moved out of their checking accounts into money market mutual funds to get some return, and um, uh, they they could be and they were at risk back in the in the Great Recession. So the Fed is basically. Um, uh, expanded uh, to that degree. Now, can they do more? Uh, yes. I mean, even to the extent uh, that uh, they create more of a, a jawboning of, of a 
an ability for them to provide guidance uh, to uh, what the future is expected. That would be to say, to say we're going to keep rates low even beyond where the point where we might get back to quote unquote some normalcy. Uh, and they'll be there uh, to uh, support uh, these markets and to help these markets. Uh, the power of explanation is really critical and not just the finances and the liquidity, but I think to, to turn to organizations like the Fed. And, and that goes for what um, Susan was just talking about, the power of explanation by Congress and the administration is very critical right now. And I think that um, this helps people understand what might happen uh, from, from the standpoint of having liquidity. It helps to prevent uh, 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 bankruptcies and insolvencies. So it's a interrelated, interconnected activity that, um, you know, across organizations, uh, government support, uh, and the Federal Reserve. That's Jack Kleinhens. He's the chief economist with the National Retail Federation. Susan Helper of Case Western Reserve University is with us as well, along with Dale Anglin of the Cleveland Foundation. Um, I want to, bef- Dale, before we get to you and the and what the philanthropic community is bringing to the table right now, which is very important information, very important help. Sue Helper, just coming back to things that government can do uh, alongside the Federal Reserve. Jack has outlined what the the Federal Reserve is uh, engaging in right now and what else they might do. You um, have been looking at what other nations are doing to support small businesses and other enterprises. And uh, and we know that the federal government right now is engaged in some very large-scale, quote-unquote, bailouts uh, of um, not just the American consumer but also American businesses. Can you give us a sense of um, what's happening, what's likely to work, and what else uh, ought to be considered? Yeah, so there are some proposals that are surprisingly bipartisan to just funnel cash to Americans. And, you know, normal times we'd be worried about people misusing the cash or people aren't really, you know, fundamentally deserving of the cash. But in this case, with unemployment rising so rapidly, I think it's it's re- would be really a great idea. And it's in the, the Senate and the House bills to, to send, you know, checks to every American, you know, make sure that the mortgage gets paid. Uh, make sure that uh, people can buy food, et cetera, while they are staying home from work to to protect all of us. Um, So that's one thing. There are, uh, the SBA is increasing, the Small Business Administration increasing its ability to uh, take loan requests from business. Um, I think this is all great. Um, You know, I, I think there are things that, you know, there is this medical uh, supply part of the economy that we really need to be ramping up right now. We have some capacity that we're not using, as we discussed. The federal government should be doing more on that front. Um, I think you also want to avoid doing things that make the next crisis worse. So, you know, there's, everybody's, you know, this is now a great time to pile on and ask for a bailout. So the fracking companies want to bail out because the price of oil is so low and you know, by all means, help the workers that are unemployed. But, you know, fracking is just going to make climate change, which could be the next big crisis, uh, uh, worse. So I think we, we need to both act very quickly. And this, this idea of sending money to people, uh, I think, is really a great one. Um, 
And uh, but also, you know, in this period, while we want the economy to be slow, we can be planning, I think, for future, you know, how do we make supply chains more robust, not only in medical supply chains, but also thinking about uh, automotive, uh, other kinds of equipment where we're so dependent on these highly fragile chains that involve uh, many crossings of borders. And as we've seen, that can all just uh, disappear in an instant. Thank you. Sue Helper is a Frank Tracy Carlton Professor of Economics at the Weatherhead School of Management at Case Western Reserve University. Um, I want to come back to some of those ideas a little bit later, if we can. Dale Anglin, um, turning to you now, uh, there was an uh, Cleveland Foundation and other philanthropic organizations have announced the creation of a COVID-19 rapid response fund. And I know that uh, with the Cleveland Foundation operating as the administrator of this fund, you've been tasked with coordinating um, much of the work. Can you talk about uh, where this came from, what it's doing, how it's going to work? Thank you very much for having me, Dan. Um, So the Greater Cleveland COVID-19 Rapid Response Fund um, is a partnership with now over 20 philanthropic and government organizations in our region. And we came together very quickly in less than a week because we recognized that this was an unprecedented crisis and philanthropy, no one foundation was going to be able to address the many issues that are going to arise short term and long term. And we felt that we've worked together before in in other areas um, around lead, around say yes. And so we had a history, some of us, of working together. And originally a few came together and then more joined very quickly. And I've got to say I am very proud of the philanthropic and the government community doing that, raising over $4 million in less than five days. $4 million in less than five days. That is impressive. Um, how, uh, how will the group, the collaborative, decide how to deploy those resources? So one, I want to use the phrase that um, one of the other speakers said, there's no playbook for this. Mm-hmm. Um, so we are working together to think through exactly how we deploy those funds. And right now, um, we will be trying to get funds out on a regular basis, trying to do that weekly. We're also trying to prioritize very basic needs right now to make sure that we're just making it through the next few weeks while we're also trying to think long term. So we're looking at organizations that support community safety nets, basic needs, particular populations that are um, stressed by what's going on um, or affected by what's go- uh, the COVID-19 virus. So that would be, you know, well, it used to be people over the age of 60, although the stats in the U.S. are, are seemingly changing that a little bit. Um, children, low income, there's a group of, 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 of groups that, of populations that we think are going to be affected right away. Um, and we're trying really hard to make sure that we're working with organizations first that affect large groups of those populations um, so that we can use our money, um, have our money go a long way. Let me just uh, take a moment to say that we're getting close to the Q&A portion of our City Club Forum. If you're just joining us on the live stream, it's uh, you, you are in the middle of a, a City Club Forum here with Dale Anglin. She's with the Cleveland Foundation, which is coordinating the Greater Cleveland COVID-19 Rapid Response Fund, a fund of more than $4 million that's been raised in just five days. And they're still accepting, of course, ongoing contributions, and they anticipate that growing. 
Um, we'll have more information coming up about how to get and how to apply for those funds for consideration of grant requests and so forth. Um, if you'd like to ask a question of our panelists, Dale is joined by Sue Halper from Case Western Reserve University and Jack Kleinhens, who's the economist, the chief economist for the National Retail Federation. You can text questions to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794 if you'd like to text a question. And if you'd like to tweet a question, you can tweet it at the City Club. We'll work those questions into the program. Dale Anglin, uh, continuing on the Rapid Response Fund information, how do organizations apply for assistance? So we are using, um, we, we technically don't have an application process, but we have on our landing page on the Cleveland Foundation website and also on the United Way website. The United Way is a, is a big partner, is part, part helping us process all of this. Is There's a website email, and that email is COVID-19 response at C-L-E-V-E-F-D-N.org. And people can email an organization, not a person, can email um, their organizational needs, what population they're serving. Um, And we will collect all of that information. And every week that information will be shared with all of our funders and we'll make decisions about how the money gets dispersed that week. I'm just going to repeat that email address, make sure I heard it, and then we'll do our best to get it on our website as well. It's COVID19response at clevefdn.org? Correct. Okay. And also, there's still we, we, this is a, a, a fund that is continuing to accept donations indefinitely, not just from foundations. We are asking for donations from corporations, from individuals. No dollar is too small. We'll take everything. It all goes out to help our fellow residents, and people can donate at Cleveland, um, clevelandfoundation.org backslash response. Okay. And they can also get in touch with you directly. I, I'm sure your email address and so forth or information how to reach you is on the Cleveland Foundation website. Dale Anglin, right. um, is this uh, in lieu of, in place of existing grant-making programs right now, or is this in addition to? This is in addition to, so I want to be very clear. All of our foundations are continuing their regular grant-making. And so if you have, a, if an organization has a relationship with a foundation, has already gotten dollars from a foundation, they should be in touch with their program officer. A number of the foundations are relaxing rules, turning project support into, into general operating support. You don't need to sometimes uh, turn in your grant reports. This is in, a, in addition to that regular grant making. This is a way that we felt like we could work together. We could share what we're learning on the ground and we could think through, given that there's no playbook, how do we meet as many needs as we can um, early in this crisis, but also think about long-term recovery. What will it take? Definitely not one foundation can do this alone. Susan Halper, I want to turn to you right now from the point of view, the perspective of a research economist. Is uh, Can these sorts of efforts, I know that the, the local, the Greater Cleveland uh, collaborative effort that Dale has described is one of many that are being formed across the country right now. Can these uh, make a difference? Oh, most definitely. They're so important. And I think the speed that Dale is talking about is also very important that, you know, if we can prevent people from, you know, missing their rent payments, from uh, going hungry, you know, that uh, supports the grocery store workers. Uh, All that's really important. But, you know, we could be looking at 
you know, 15, 20 percent unemployment if if the crisis goes unabated, you know, for for a short period. Uh, And so we really need the federal government to step in uh, because only they really have the the firepower to to really stop it. But these early local efforts are so, so important. And and I really commend the the foundations for doing them. The uh, Dell Anglin, in terms of process, and I know I mentioned just a, a second ago that there are other entities that are doing this across the country, and community foundations are both the logical leaders of, of this and a uh, and welcome leader in these efforts. Um, what kinds of processes are different? Are you learning that different community foundations and their collaborators are using? And also, what kind you know, of priorities? Uh, yeah, if if you so we are. We're sharing. I will just say there's over a hundred of these um, of these funds that have, have opened up over the last week, um, and we're all taking the lead from the Seattle Community Foundation because they were hit first and they started this first. And so I thank all of my community foundation colleagues in particular for helping those of us um, manage through this crisis and learn from what they're doing. Um, most of us are highlighting basic needs first: food, medical supplies. Um, Things like, to be honest, mental health support for families that aren't used to having their special needs children at home with them all day. Um, well, every, nothing's off the table yet, um, but we are trying to make sure the basic needs of our community and particularly hard-hit populations like low-income, like special needs, like health-compromised health populations are met first. And we're trying to go with organizations that we know can get those funds out very quickly and have the staff and the support to do that. And are there um, specific, I I think when I read the, correct me if I'm wrong, but when I read the press release about this, it sounded as if there are specific sort of guiding principles uh, that that all the collaborators have signed on to that have to do with targeting funds specifically to communities that have long been especially vulnerable and are even more vulnerable in this time. Yeah, and I want to say one of our first priorities is that we know that our dollars are a drop in the bucket, mm-hmm. that the federal government and, and state and county governments um, always have more dollars and more levers to push than what we do. And so we're also, as a first step, working with as many of those partners as we can find, and, they, and it's been a great partnership, to support whatever changes that they need to make to make sure that these social safety nets like unemployment and homeless services and support for our homebound seniors, that those are met through their agencies first. Whatever we can do to help spread their dollars and help um, the programs that they have, which are much larger than what we fund, is our first priority. And then we're trying to figure out what are the large organizations um, in the region, of which there are many, that work with a large number of either other smaller organizations or large numbers of people. Um, and, you know, one of the best examples is our Greater Cleveland Food Bank, right? They just work with, they support so many food pantries around the region. Um, how can we help a group like that help their people that, and, and the pantries that they support? Dale Anglin is a program director at the Cleveland Foundation. She's uh, been tasked with coordinating the Greater Cleveland COVID-19 Rapid Response Fund on behalf of a a large group and a growing group of philanthropic organizations. Here at the City Club today, it's a virtual forum looking at the economy and the economic impact of the coronavirus and this pandemic. 
If you'd like to join the conversation, if you have a, a question that you'd like to ask our panelists, text it to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794. And as always, you can also tweet a question at the City Club, and we'll work it in. Um, question uh, from about the ripple effects here. What will happen to public entities such as RTA, Metro Health, or even municipal towns and cities that are taking enormous hits to their revenue? Susan Helper, this sounds like uh, sort of echoes, like they may not be taking enormous hits right now, but they will in a few months and next year. Yeah, no, I think, you know, ridership on the RTA is way down. We've, mm-hmm. You know, and this is actually really important in reducing the spread of the disease. You know, every contact that we can reduce reduces the possibility of uh, spreading that disease to someone else. It's really important that, that the RTA business is down. And uh, I think this is uh, a reason why we're going to need various kinds of support, uh, you know, from the federal government. The, the states generally cannot run deficits. Uh, they, you know, if their tax money goes down, then their ability to, to spend money goes down. And so that's why we really depend on the federal government, uh, both the Federal Reserve, as Jack uh, said, but also uh, fiscal policy, so the, the government running these big deficits. And I think, you know, an important thing to rec- recognize is that you know, when this is over, we're a strong economy. We're going to be just as hardworking, just as smart as we were. But what we need to do now is just make sure that we spend whatever it takes, uh, and uh, to to make sure that we're strong, and and then and make sure that we take actions now that will increase our uh, ability to respond to these things in the future. And um, so, so. Uh, mm-hmm. Responding to these issues at you know at the RTA at local and state governments is really important. Jack Kleinhens, uh, another question from our audience: What will happen to banks when restaurants, airlines, cruise lines, and others can no longer repay their loans? Well, I think that's the whole purpose behind the bailout package: is uh, to keep those companies solvent so that they can meet their debt requirements. And I think at the same time, you know, uh, smaller businesses and individuals need the same type of support. We're, we're putting a big, a big hole in, in, on the income side of the economy. This loss of income is going to be huge. We don't really know sort of, we don't have any data that as we get through this, how we restart the engine. We think the chassis, as Susan was saying, we were actually going into the, into this pandemic with actually good fundamentals, but now we're forcing ourselves into, you know, a, a stop. So the, if you ever been in a highway where the traffic is backed up five miles on a turnpike and we're waiting and waiting and then slowly you move, but it takes hours. I mean, just imagine this huge economy that has been brought down into a stop position. Now, we're still operating. Don't get me wrong. I mean, we aren't completely stopping. Many, many part of parts of our industry. But when you start talking about the uh, retail, the leisure, the hospitality industry, these are these are large numbers of people that are being employed. And if those people do not uh, uh, get income, they're not going to spend. And if you don't have spending, you have this 
you know, kind of reinforcing issue that uh, businesses and individuals are, are going to be having to deal with. So I think that the, the, the advocacy that we need to increase, and as Susan just mentioned, whatever it takes is very important. Can we, can we hold on? Can we afford this? Mm-hmm. You know, this trillion dollars is another question. Well, you know what? Yes, we actually uh, spent in 2009 a, a billion four on the Stimulus Act, which bailed out banks and other organizations. And then we had another billion three in 2010 to, for tax cuts and the American health uh, program. So um, the economy is larger than it is than it was back then. And it is and it can be much more resilient than what we see today or we imagine over the next quarter. So um, this is a critical path. I think that uh, the support is required. Uh, The the unfortunate thing is, and my last comment is that um, not everybody is equal when it comes to income, whether it be a business or or a household and the needs are different if you're a small business or if you're a low income person. And the longer we dilly dally about developing aid, the longer these people are in uncertainty and then the longer, um, you know, we start to deal with the problem and find a solution. So I'm, I'm very anxious that we come to some decision quickly, hopefully within the next, you know, within today or the next day that Congress can act um, uh, diligently. A related question came to us via Twitter uh, asking, and you probably don't have a crystal ball to be able to answer this, but the talking, you'd be able to talk about the stakes, uh, Jack and Jack Kleinhens and Sue Helper. Will the state of Ohio suspend sales tax requirements today? The due date is Monday, and the hospitality industry doesn't know if the state will impose penalties for non-payment. Many would deplete cash reserves to pay it or have to borrow to make those payments. Sue Helper, your thoughts? So I wanted to just uh, chime in, I think, on a more general point and then then come to the specific. You know, I, I think that it's really important to have quick bailouts to individuals. I think that's so important. Uh, and small business. I worry about bailouts to large business without uh, uh, conditions. So, uh, you know, take the airlines. I think they are a systemically important business. We need a airlines, but, but they actually took actions that make them more vulnerable. They bought back so much stock and uh, basically used up almost all of the cash flow that they uh, had uh, collected through their enormous profits. And so they're in an extremely weak position due to their own actions. And so I think that, you know, before money goes to those businesses as opposed to their workers, we need to really think about uh, conditions on, you know, uh, banning stock buybacks, making sure the money doesn't go to uh, executives, et cetera. Um, so there needs to be, I think, quick action on people who, you know, this really happened through no fault of their own. They're small. They're not going to determine the course of the future economy. But then much more care in making sure that we don't make the next problem worse. I think it's a, a lesson we should have learned from, from uh, 2008, 2009. Um, on the sales tax, Jack may be better to answer, uh, you know, a problem that the state has is that they need to balance their budget. 
Mm-hmm. And so if they forego that income, then they can put less out. Now, if they know there's going to be revenue sharing from the feds to make up that uh, uh, shortfall, or there's also a proposal from Americans for financial reform to allow the Fed to actually buy up obligations from state and local governments, if they knew that some kind of relief like that was happening, then they could do it. But I'm not sure in the absence of that that they can. Jack Kleinhens. Well, one thing that to build off of what Susan said is, though, we did rebuild our rainy day fund, the state of Ohio, if I'm not mistaken, uh, under the previous uh, administration. That was a priority. So to a certain extent, um, the sales taxes, if we're delayed, probably could um, be offset by funds from that rainy day fund. Uh, but, you know, it's it's a it's a major flywheel. Um, tax taxes are the flywheel for uh, state government uh, to do what it does. So um, uh, delaying uh, would probably mean and a very important part. And I don't know what actions the governor and and the state representatives are thinking about uh, to uh, for forbear on these in the near term. I'm sure it's being thought of. Let me put it this. I'm not sure. I'm hopeful that they're looking at ways to figure out how to deal with some of these situations. The the, the sales taxes, though, have should have been already collected. And I don't think technically I would think that you would be able to use those taxes to run your business, I think. Well, anyhow, uh, I'll leave it at that. That's all. It's a matter of individual business owners and their ability to manage cash flow, I suppose. But Dale Anglin, uh, the this is this one of the kinds of policies you mentioned advocacy earlier? Is this one of the kinds of policies for which you and other philanthropic organizations might choose to add to your advocacy agenda at this moment? Well, I think we, we are we, we will be developing an advocacy agenda right now. Um, it's looking like that is going to be focused also more directly on our most vulnerable populations. Um, so things like our homeless policies, our policies around unemployment insurance and things like that that the state manages. We're not dealing with the federal government right now. Mm-hmm. And all of that is to be determined over the next few weeks as we come together as a foundation body to think through. Where we've already put, some of us are putting our names on letters to the governor and things like that to support the amazing work that he is doing to keep this state, this state safe. <laughs> the uh, Another similar related question came in asking what civic level rapid response collaborative efforts are underway to, he- to help neighborhood-based businesses. Dale Anglin, I'm not sure if you're the right person to ask that, um, but you're perhaps the only one of our panelists who might be able to answer that. I know. You know, a lot of things are coming up, and we are, we'll be spending the next few days um, triaging, to be honest, and prioritizing. Local neighborhood businesses have come up as an issue. Right now, we, it looks like for the first couple of weeks, we're going to be focused more on making sure that people are meeting their basic needs, like I said around food and housing and transportation. We are not right now um, prepared to talk about some of the economic impacts for those businesses. Um, Not saying we won't, um, but just for now, we want to make sure people are home safe and able to get their basic needs met. Jack Kleinhens, across the 
the spectrum of the retail federation and, and retail outlets that you survey and also among the consumers that you've recently surveyed, uh, the how what percentage of businesses are engaging in cost reduction measures by which I'm which is sort of a euphemism for laying people off or reducing hours? That's a question I cannot answer. Okay. Uh, we know that um, firms, enterprises are taking action to preserve as best they can their workforce and support them. But remember, we are talking about a very diverse industry. Mm -hmm. We're looking at very large firms and we're looking at mom and pops and self-employed entrepreneurs. And um, uh, so this count that we're watching closely on unemployment claims is is something that is going to be a, somewhat of a leading indicator of the severity of what is going to be you know impacting uh, not only retail but other all, all industries and locally and regionally and statewide so I, I don't have a number that I can tell you right at this point you uh, the the National Retail Federation last or this past week surveyed consumers about their mood, their intentions, and so forth. What did you learn? Well, uh, thank you for asking, because we did this survey on March 18th, which is only, what, uh, three days ago. So we feel it's pretty timely. We've been doing this on a regular basis, and they certainly, consumers are much more concerned about the coronavirus than they were a week ago. Eighty-six percent are are moderately, very, or extremely concerned. That's 73% last week, 86% this week. Now, in terms of the um, uh, uh, concern, 88%. Uh, so practically, you know, all except for 10 are worried about the impact on the health of the economy. And, and um, that was way up from the previous month. Um, they are worried about their jobs. Uh, We've been talking a lot about jobs and maybe an indirect way to answer the question that was offered me a minute ago. Mm -hmm. um, but these are households, okay, and uh, not the retail uh, workers, but households, 46%, nearly 50% are, are worried about losing their jobs and income. And that's, that has now doubled from where it was a week ago. So we've been talking about this, this, this acceleration of concern and confidence and anxiety. And um, how are they doing in terms of their behavior and shopping? Well, uh, they're actually attempting to change their shopping behavior uh, significantly. They're avoiding shopping centers, 50% of them are. They're stocking up on household items. We've been seeing reports uh, considerable on, on, uh, on TV and elsewhere uh, they're trying to shop at uh, other times. And um, despite the concerns about the health of the economy and their impact to their personal finances, it's an interesting uh, indication of how people are looking at this at right now. I think this will change over time. But 77% uh, still report that they have not yet pulled back on their spending. And uh, this is actually down from last week, which is 84%. So this whole idea about confidence and that there will be support uh, from the government uh, and state, local, federal government, I think is very important to, to backstop people's thoughts about um, their 
personal finances and their and, and their ability uh, to sustain themselves during this period of time. Thank you, Jack Kleinhens. Sue Halper, final question from our listening audience and our, our viewing audience, our streaming audience to you. Um, what permanent changes permanent changes to the economy do you expect to see? Wow, I, I think that that's a um, a question where you know all of us, our collective voice, can really determine what that looks like. You know, one possibility, and there was a New York Times article about this this morning, of you know the lobbyists swoop in and we have support for airlines to essentially do what they do, fracking to do what they do. Even uh, Adidas wants a tax break for gym membership. So that's one possibility. I think another possibility is that we actually use this as a time to think about, you know, shoring up some of the weaknesses in our economy that makes us vulnerable. So the lack of paid sick leave for a quarter of Americans, you know, it's been addressed somewhat in the, the current bills, but but not in an underlying way. Um, the uh, the vulnerability of our supply chains. I mean, I think, you know, we now have in place potentially, uh, I think we could see the urgency of doing things like rebuilding our manufacturing, um, understanding and predicting the next pandemic. So I, I think that we can come out of this much stronger, but but I think it's going to take, you know, the, the will and, and uh voting and collective action of all of us um, to, to do that. Jack Leinhans, any thoughts about that question as well? Well, I, I, I think that Susan's ideas are, are correct, that out of adver- uh, adversity, we sometimes get strength, and we see the limitations of the system, uh, and we need to consider the options about reinforcing the good parts and addressing and creating solutions to the to the ones that are are, are problematic. Um, and I think that the agenda is a very large one. I think that uh, uh, we have to recognize, though, at the same time, that this economy and the and the consumer and households they are very resilient because of the freedom we have and, and the laws that we operate um, uh, within. And uh, while we go through change and go through this period of time, we also need to take you know, some benefit from the fact that we are who we are today uh, because we have the, the kind of capitalist markets with, with regulatory appropriateness that are able to operate. And I think so. Long story short, um, you think we can we can sustain ourselves. We can. We're this this economy is as troubling as this is. This economy is resilient enough, and our society is resilient enough to withstand. Yes, thank you. I'm sorry, well, our time is a little bit <laughs> short, Jack, so I thought I'd summarize. Yeah. Jack Kleinhens is chief economist for the National Retail Federation. Also with us, Sue Halper, Frank Tracy Carlton, professor of economics at Weatherhead School of Management at Case Western Reserve University. Dale Anglin joined us as well for the City Club Forum. She's with the Cleveland Foundation coordinating the COVID-19 Rapid Response Fund, which is a collaborative effort by philanthropic institutions throughout the region. Lots of information on that will be available at our website. It's also available at the Cleveland Foundation's website. I want to thank the three of you, uh, and I want to thank uh, you for joining us as well, the listener and the viewer. Um, we uh, This forum was presented virtually, and I apologize, guys, there'd be applause right now if we were at the City Club. It would be huge, massive applause for you guys. Um, Applaud yourselves, please. Yes, thank you very much.
I want to thank our partners at IdeaStream for helping us present our City Club Forum today virtually. Our work to continue the conversation in the midst of the pandemic is supported by our members and by the Western Reserve Area Agency on Aging, the Sisters of Charity Foundation, Everstream, and City Club board member Mark Ross of PwC, as well as many others who have stepped up. You can join them and see a complete list when you visit us at cityclub.org. We are going to continue to present our Friday forums throughout this time. So for the moment, we're rescheduling what had been on our calendar for March and April. If you have ideas about topics we should cover while we all learn to shelter in place, please get in touch. We're at cityclub.org. I'm Dan Malthrop. Stay strong, stay healthy, stay close in your hearts if you can't stay close in person. Our forum is adjourned. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.